0: Amen. Let's look at this. Acts chapter 4. Again, Peter has just preached the second sermon to the crowds on the Temple Mount. a a energy, electrically charged atmosphere with controversy all abound. And now, as he's preaching, he is so effectively reaching the souls and their hearts are melting and they're receiving Jesus that the powers that be, the Sanhedrin themselves... Send their representatives and he'll be called the captain of the of the guard it's actually a title that means basically the fellow who is right below the high priest is, is who this is he's called a captain of a guard but he's, he's not he's not a mall cop not by any stretch of your imagination is he a mall cop he is the second in command that is the right hand of the high priest so let's pick it up as, as Peter is being uh, interrupted, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed. And that's a big word in any language, by the way. It is as though a bomb went off in their peaceful midst. Their keep on keeping on has been derailed and the road that led from where they are to where they normally go has been seismically offered so that it no longer goes there anymore. That's the concept. And as such, they're going to do some intervening of their own. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. Similar to, by the way, what happened to Jesus about 100 days earlier. That Jesus was seized, but because it was night, let's let him stew a bit in in captivity until the next morning. But many who heard the message, this is an interesting aside here in verse 4. It's like, oh, by the way. Many who heard the message believed, so that the number of men who believed grew to about five thousand. And, and as the New Testament uses men for that, that would, would imply that there were also women and probably equal numbers, perhaps ten thousand. Now, ten thousand that are all celebrating and proclaiming, and not just celebrating, proclaiming, but experiencing repentance deliverance scales have fallen from their eyes and now they are living in this beautiful community devoted to one another to the teachings of the apostles to the breaking of bread to prayer all of this is now the background as they are being put into prison and so then early that next day just like jesus early the next day and by the way some of the very same figures are here remember jesus was brought to where kyphus's house Caiphas is the high priest annas is his father-in-law, who is kind of the power behind the throne. Annas was the high priest from 6 to 15 AD, but then he was the kingmaker. He established the next succession of high priests. Matter of fact, the next five high priests were basically all picked by him, including his son-in-law, Caiaphas, and five of his sons. Uh, One of his sons is named Jonathan. He might be in this picture as well here. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. This group would have been known as the Sanhedrin. It would have been the high priest and the 70 leading elders, Bible experts, Pharisees, some, but mainly Sadducees. Sadducees would have been the people in power. I don't want to get into all of their nuances, but, but know that they are the power brokers. They have the most to lose if the current status quo is somehow upturned. Annas, the high priest, was there. He actually isn't currently the high priest, but again, because he is the power behind the power, he is referred to as such. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, that may have been another high priest in succession, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Now, as, as Matt mentioned a moment ago, Peter, when questioned by the lowest strata of society, which was a slave girl, right, a, a young girl and a slave, the least intimidating person possible to confront Peter. And if we remember what happened three times, she was like, hey, you know what? Your accent is Galilean. Are you sure you're not with those Galileans that are with Jesus? No, no, not me, not me. I mean, he's he crumbles. He's not in Caiaphas' house. He's not before in in the Sanhedrin. is very intimidating. It's a big semicircle, uh, almost a complete circle. On one side would be a scribe that is writing down everything positive that should give you acquittal, and on the other side is another scribe writing down everything that should uh, prosecute or condemn you. So you've got these two like writing feverishly in this moment here. And you know that everything you say is either kind of tipping the balance of the scales either towards doom and destruction or deliverance. So this is an intimidating scene, to say the least. The scene before with Peter was outside in a courtyard. People just kind of cool in their jets, trying to stay warm around a charcoal fire and uh, in a side comment of. You've got a Galilean accent. Oh, I don't know the man. I don't, may God bring down curses on me if I know this Jesus Christ. Jesus never knew him, never knew him. Jesus schmises. What is he to me? Ah, no, not me, not me. This is the same man. The same man. A servant girl, not even in front of Annas or Caiaphas, but out in a courtyard with a little fire that they're warming themselves around. Now the same man... I want you to appreciate this as we read this. The same man is in this theater of intimidation. Designed exactly for that purpose. And look at him now. Then Peter... There's something different. Filled with the Holy Spirit. Said to them, come on. Rulers and elders of the people. If we're being called to an account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame... And are being asked how he was healed? This is interesting. Because all they ask is, by what power, by what name, did this healing occur? Peter isn't just content to then defend himself and to explain and to say, yeah, isn't it amazing that now he can walk and there's no, no, no contradicting this? I mean, it's irrefutable evidence. Peter is not content with that. Peter is like, I feel a sermon coming on, as we hear an upside down. The Holy Spirit is ready to bring it and... You know what? What better place than this? John, what do you say? Wanna do this thing? Let's do it. BOOM! And, and here he says, and he says, if this is why I'm being called, then know this. That phrase, then know this. Gnostan esto. It is, in the original language, a rhetorical device to say, pause, I want you all to now pay the most careful attention that you possibly can pay. Because what I'm about to bring to you is the most important thing for you to know. Let's, let's go on. Then know this. And i got to find my spot there. <laughs> you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man... Stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected. Matter of fact, here Peter slightly changes the wording of Psalm 118. Psalm 118 says, It's the stone that you considered and tossed away. But he uses the word, It is the stone on which you poured your contempt. The stone that you scorned mercilessly. The stone you builders rejected. But he but he does it emphatically. He actually adds the words by you when he references this psalm has now become the cornerstone. Why is that a big deal? Oh, the cornerstone. Oh no, cornerstone. I, I mean, uh, yeah, it's gonna have an inscription on the corner. No, the cornerstone is emblematic of saying the thing by which you build your understanding of life. The the paradigm shaping. Foundation from which all understanding flows is the cornerstone. A cornerstone is set first. All other stones are are then oriented based on that. And this cornerstone. and, And again, the temple is in view in this psalm. This cornerstone is going to rearrange everything that you understand about God and the temple and your position and everything else. It will be upended. And then, after having made his case rather strongly that you're about to have everything turned upside down in your life, he then makes it even more plain. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Drop the Mike, Peter and John fist bumping and oh, and uh, we'll probably get flogged or killed. But it didn't matter. They were living out what they had just heard from Jesus a hundred days earlier. What did he said to them is he prepared them for this very moment. He said in, in, in Luke wrote both these words and, and, and these, these earlier words. Luke, of course, wrote the book of Acts and in, in Luke uh, 21, just listen, I'll read it to you. But before all this. This is what Jesus says to Peter and John. But before all this, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison. You'll be brought before kings and governors and on account of my name. And so you will bear testimony to me. But that when that happens, Jesus says, don't worry about it. Because I will give you words that are irrefutable. The argument that you make. No one will be able to stand up against it. You know, and I've been I've been in some tough spots. There there have been times in our in our campus ministry where we were up at at Ocean View getting ready to celebrate the new life as as one of our young students was brought to an amazing repentance, had been delivered from addictions and, and life enslaving behaviors so celebratory of the power of Christ bringing him to the waters of baptism. And just as we do coming into that parking lot, right there at ocean view are his parents saying, what's going on here. What is this? My son is getting into. And I remember at that time saying, Oh, stink. But then also thinking like, Oh man, how am I going to say this? Just right. Like, I don't want to be disrespectful to parents, but I also don't want to any way be a, a, a coward or a compromiser for the message of Christ and it's irrefutable what God has already done in this young man's life and, and how am I going to make my way through it? And, and I remember at, at that moment, as we engaged in conversation, absolutely experiencing that I'm actually saying all the right things. Amen. This never happens to me. I'm always the guy in the car right home hitting his head saying, I should have said that. Oh, that would have been so awesome if I had said that just two minutes ago, if I had just said that. Now it's too late. Oh, can I hit rewind? How does this work? But in that moment, not at all. It was almost as if the world was moving in slow motion. And I had all the time in the world to find the right Bible passage and think through the right conclusion and to draw the, the, the ideas together. I thought, what is going on? This is amazing. It was just exhilarating to, to realize that God so dearly wanted this young man to be saved. This wasn't about me having the right thing to say at the right time. It was all about Jesus' work being completed. I mean, at times I was going thinking like, holy smokes, like the question they just asked is answered so clearly by scripture. And the, the very thing that they just said just caused them to contradict themselves and contradict the clear wording of Christ. And I actually know right where it is in the scriptures where I can go right now. This was many years ago. I didn't know like that many scriptures. That I could just kind of call on, and, and but boy, there, there's the Bible falling open to it, and and it's amazing. It's amazing to realize that wow, when God is going to put you into those into those tight spots, those tough spots. I remember being brought before the the council at ODU, and they were thinking about, are we going to kind of allow you to be on campus or not? You guys are so bold in your proselytizing. It's 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 so unusual, and what, why is this going on? And, but but again, even in that spot as well. Here's the amazing thing that we're going to see. This is not a one-off for these guys. Sadly, it's, it's much more of a one-off for us. Because we don't end up in these positions. Where the, the radical boldness of what we're proclaiming and what we're doing and what we're furthering in the name of Christ is putting us into difficult spots. And we've got to ask ourselves, why, really? In the first century, when the Christians got together, there were riots in the 21st century, when Americans Christians get together, at most there's a conference. Right. That's a stark difference. But it's not a one off for the disciples. In next week's lesson, it'll begin with when they saw the courage, the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. Acts 4.31, after they prayed, the place where their meeting was shaken. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God. In Acts 9, uh, Acts 9.27, Barnabas told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him. And how in Damascus, he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. Acts 13.46, then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly. We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. Acts 14.3. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to form signs and wonders. Acts 28.31. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Wow. You want to you be able to preach with all boldness? Then just take your inhibitions and check them at the door wherever you go. Once my inhibitions are checked, then the spirit no longer has my filters and constraints. And praise God that it is a spirit of power, love, and self-discipline. In Ephesians 6, pray for me also that whenever I speak, this is verse 19, words may be given that I may fearlessly make known the gospel, the mystery of the gospel. Philippians 1.14, because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. The, the literal wording there, they have become bold in the Lord. I love Psalm 138. In, in Psalm 138, verse 3, the literal rendering of this is, when I called, you answered me. You, God, made me bold in my soul with your strength. This is not going to about be because we can conjure up more bravado ourselves, or that Peter did such a thing. Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. A spirit that desires the message of Christ to be proclaimed beautifully, lovingly, elegantly, but boldly. And as he brings it, he could have gone a lot of ways to kind of build consensus or kind of soften the blow, but he brings it. Peter's Basic message is, you all killed this Jesus. That's how this was done, by the one you killed. Yes, you. Yes, you. Know this. You. The cornerstone. You. You scorn. You. But now, guess what? Jesus is ready to give you salvation. Yes, you. Yes, you. No one else but Jesus. And even to you. That's pretty beautiful. Why is it that they're hearing this message of ultimate rescue, ultimate deliverance, ultimate salvation? It's even confirmed with miraculous signs. Why are these power brokers not saying, oh my goodness, hallelujah, thank you. How great is this, that during our lifetime, we can experience God's plan coming together and the deliverer coming here for us. Why is it that they're not saying that? Because it's not good news, not if you were the one in charge. Not if you're the one who is the superintendent of ultimate truth. And if you strongly suspected that this new movement was trying to upstage you to diminish your authority and take it for itself, that your cornerstone would be absolutely reoriented. Well, then that's why you wouldn't receive it with joy and gladness is because your own power, your own self-worth, your own view of your place in the world is going to be upended. And that's going to require a good bit of humility. And so, to say something like this, though, I mean, even that sign, it it doesn't make you give you a warm and fuzzy. In our society, of course, it doesn't give you a warm and fuzzy. But guess what? In no society has that ever given you a warm and fuzzy. It's not like they had an easier time. Rome, as an empire, was by definition, pluralistic. The way that Rome and Augustine was able to bring about the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana, the beautiful administration of all of that was based on inclusive, diverse tolerance. You have your God over there in Ephesus. Good good on you. You have your God over there in Athens. You have your God down there in Alexandria. But just kind of keep your God to a, his own sphere of influence That that your God somehow has claim over the other gods. Or, God forbid, don't ever make a claim that your God has any sort of authority over Caesar. That, that ain't going to go down, by the way, either. So they, this is the very society in which the gospel was originally preached. Perhaps more downside to preaching no other way than, than even today. Yeah. But for today, oh my goodness, all kinds of downside, right? All kinds of why you're narrow-minded, you're you're arrogant, you're exclusive, you're triumphalistic. And you would be if you were using the name of Jesus to somehow enhance your own power, your own prestige, your own position, or in any way to sideline those that didn't agree with you. If you did that, then sure, there would be arrogance and exclusivity in, in, in triumphalism. But that boot of authority is on the other foot now. That boot of authority, it's the secularists. It's the relativists who now act the part of the chief priests, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. This, this has radically been upended. And what they really have at stake is protecting their temple of postmodern thought that allows them to feel great about themselves and allows them in their own paradigm to be able to maintain peace and prosperity in the way that they think is the best approach to being able to do so. The apostles would answer, well then, are you getting upset because we did something kind? Because of a kindness shown? And because of an extended kindness that is offered? That's why all of this disturbance? Because we want to be able to show the love of God now made manifest. And I, and I get it. I, I you know I, I hear it. I hear it. I appreciate it. It's, it's, it's a message that I hear all the time. I, I would imagine the younger you are, the more you're confronted with it. If you claim Christianity, you basically are hearing. I think you need to check the calendar. If people are going to believe in Jesus and not be offended by Christianity, this Christianity that you claim, well, you're going to have to be a bit more flexible. How about saying that all religions are equally valid and that you're not the only right religion? And and then we can all have peace. I'm I'm willing to say your religion is pretty good. If you could just say, you know, their religion is pretty good and their religion is pretty good. Why not? Why why not just kind of do it that way? If if I'm open-minded enough for that, why can't you be open-minded enough for that? Now it sounds very reasonable. It actually sounds pretty loving. At face value, it sounds like, oh yeah, maybe I am narrow. Maybe I am bigoted or chauvinistic. But but what they're asking you to do is to just believe in a Jesus who doesn't make a claim for that sort of stuff. A Jesus that doesn't claim exclusivity. A Jesus that only preaches love and humility and selflessness. Just hold to that Jesus. Just don't say that he's better than other teachers. Don't say that he's better than Muhammad or Krishna or Confucius or gandhi or buddha no don't go there but here's the difficulty with that you would have to make that jesus up that is not the jesus of historical data that is the jesus of modern convention that is making a god in your own liking or you in your own image that is creating an idol and saying why don't you worship that idol if we're actually going to follow jesus we don't have that choice This is the Jesus of the Bible. This is not just Christians saying this. This is Jesus in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's kind of clear. Also, Krishna, Buddha, Gandhi, Muhammad, Confucius, you pick it. None of them ever made the more outrageous claim that jesus made i am god none of them made that claim if we're going to worship jesus we've got to recognize who it is that we worship and we can't make him in our own image in a way to be more palatable to society around us in john 5 i'll read this to you jesus gave them an answer starting in verse 19 very truly i tell you The Son can do nothing by Himself. He can only do what He sees His Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all He does. Yes, and He will show Him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom He is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my words and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly I tell you, a time is coming, and now is come, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the son of man. Now, at face value and at the value of those who were in the original audience hearing this, they were up in arms. Why? Because they said he is equating himself with God. And he is saying that he is the ultimate judge. This is the Jesus. That's him. now. But, But you may... You know, kind of say, you know, but I, I, I like this Jesus. And it, you may, may kind of meet people that say, you know, I, I, you know I'm, I'm actually convinced about the evidence of his resurrection. And when I look at the brilliance of his teaching, the beauty of the character that I see in him, I want to believe in this Jesus. I do. I want to believe in this Jesus. Well, then you've got to believe in this Jesus, not a Jesus of your own making and not a Jesus of society's making. But this Jesus, but this is the Jesus who also said this, something that Krishna, Buddha, Muhammad, Gandhi, Confucius never said. In Matthew 26, Jesus said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. Wow. This is also the Jesus you get when you get the real Jesus. You get a Jesus who looks at you with love in his eyes at the moment of your darkest, dank, disgusting, depraved condition. Not for this moment when you're here reading, singing hymns and thinking how wonderful is is God and his church. Not for this moment. The most shameful moment is when Jesus looks at you and says, it's for this time. I'm going to shed my blood for you. But now, here's what's really interesting, I think. While society says to us, your take on Jesus is narrow and wrong. Your take on Jesus is exclusive. And who are you to say that your take on spiritual reality is the only way and that you must believe in it? That is absolutely wrong and you should stop saying that. And you should believe our way. Our way and our take on spiritual reality is that there are plenty of ways. And that, that our view of God and reality and spiritual reality is the right reality. And as a matter of fact, our take on spirituality is the right way. The only way. And you should believe in it. You see the irony in that? They're just as exclusive. When in the marketplace, when in the halls of academia, when amongst your peer group, through media, when you hear again and again, I have a particular view of God and spiritual reality, You must adopt my view on spiritual reality and abandon your view. That is the 99% view of of society around us. They're actually evangelizing me when they say that. Just as you're trying to evangelize them with the offer of Jesus, they're trying to evangelize you with, with this very idea. But there's one big difference, actually two big differences, is that while They're trying to make their view the only right view. And we're trying to say that our view is the only right view. And that we're both saying that. They won't admit it. They won't admit it. But the second big difference is. They're willing to use power and persecution. To shut down the other view. And we're not. We're happy to recognize. That in the marketplace of ideas. That Jesus will prevail. And that we can't help but to speak of Jesus and what we have seen and heard and what we've experienced to not do so, to not be bold would, would be to dishonor the good news, the good news of Christ. But not only are they evangelizing that, that that say, don't you dare say no other way, but they're also willing to use whatever intimidation they have to shut you down, to give you severe consequences at your workplace amongst your peers At your school, wherever they have an ability to wield influence in any way whatsoever. So then what's the problem with being able to say, "But, but we're trying to share with you the one way. And what's so wrong with that one way when that one way comes courtesy of ultimate love. Jesus humbling himself, becoming man because he loves you. Becoming man and pouring out his blood for the forgiveness of sins. Well, you know what the problem with that is, of course, is that he also delivers you. He delivers you from self and sin. And of course, that means that your cornerstone gets reoriented when you come to Jesus. That when you say, "Yeah, you know, anyway, any way is just as good as any other way. You know what you can do with that? Anything you want to do. And you still remain enslaved to your addictions, enslaved to your lusts, enslaved to your passions. On that same cycle, treadmill of vanity. But Christ actually delivers us from all of that. Amen. And believe it or not, as, as much as this seems counterintuitive, Jesus and his message does not produce intolerance and it does not produce Exclusivity in terms of The people that are gathered Matter of fact, Christianity historically Has led to the most Inclusive, diverse human Community the world has ever Seen. Besides the public Schools and The military, a gathering This week that looks like this Does not happen Because unless you're kind of Forced into going to school With everybody from your neighborhood You don't end up in this kind of diversity. It doesn't exist. But how does this diversity come about? Because of the message of Jesus. The message of grace. uncompromising adherence to grace. Produces diversity. Produces tolerance. There is greater tolerance. Matter of fact. We are not just tolerant of enemies. We love. And we're commanded to love enemies. So far above and beyond. Any sort of. Well It's just put up and shut up so that we can all get along. And we actively love. Now, when I grew up, I grew up in the, in the Northeast. I went to an Ivy League school in the Northeast. And I was Mr. Tolerance, right? In my mind. But guess how many black friends I really had? Oh, sure, I'd, you know, kind of give a fist bump, although it wasn't invented in the 80s. <laughs> but were there any in my fraternity? Oh, no. Oh, no. Now... I don't know whether my friends are black or white. I mean, we we forget. And as we keep kind of growing as a community and everybody's just marrying, everybody's going to turn out some shade of tan in a little while anyway. (laughs) Our church was the first church in apartheid South Africa that was black and white. Where Gandhi himself went to South Africa and came away saddened that I like your Christ but I don't like that Christianity because he saw the absolute segregation that was there. Well, just because there are egregious violations of hypocrisy among Christians doesn't make Christianity wrong. You say, "Ah, that's the danger of religion." Look at look at the examples. Yes, look at an Islamic extremist and yes that is dangerous and but don't paint Christianity with that brush. Why? Because while an Islamic extremist, a jihadist of all different stripes, is actually operating in alignment with what he reads in his scriptures, a Christian crusader has to operate in absolute contradiction to the words of Jesus. Absolute contradiction to the words of Jesus. I'm not going to read this to you. I just looked at the clock. (laughs) But here's the one last part to this, though it's important to note. Yeah, you could talk about color. And yes, we got all of that here. But what about the bigger issue? What about transgender? What about homosexuality? What about all of that? The same applies. Even though the world has tolerance for ideas, less so than ethnicities and people, we actually have tolerance for all peoples, but less so for ideas. But now here's... Here's the difficulty with that. But So so then you're saying the idea of transgender or the idea of homosexuality you have intolerance for. Now, what what I'm saying is just as my life was out of alignment with Christ and I knew the darkness, the desperation and the emptiness of it. I also know that all people feel that for a variety of reasons and reasons that are no more heinous or no more remarkable than my own. But that Jesus heals in every situation. The goal of Jesus is not heterosexuality, it's holiness. However it is that we come to that. We've got brothers and sisters that are heroes, that have been Christians with Jesus as Lord for decades upon decades, and they have been holy. They they have not engaged in immoral sexuality. And, And there's no difference between that beautiful holiness, no matter what sort of stripe of sexuality, that you have when you can come to the place where you realize the beauty, the grandeur, the greatness, the grace, the love of Jesus, Jesus is enough. Yeah. Jesus is so much enough that he is so eclipsing that, that he really is the great meaning and fulfillment of any and every life, but it is difficult to come to that place it 's I love the the picture that c s Lewis paints in Narnia where Eustace, the, the, the boy that is spoiled and kind of rotten and dreams of his money, wakes up after all of his greedy dreams, a dragon, symbolic of the ugliness that was in his soul. But then he realizes, oh, wait, these scales can maybe come off because, you know, serpent scales come off. And he gets through a couple layers, but that doesn't do any difference. Finally, so emptied comes to Aslan, the Jesus figure here, and says, Help me. What if Aslan just said to him, You know what, Eustace, you're a dragon and. I know there's a deep ugliness and darkness that goes with that, but just say positive things about yourself, and it'll all be better. That's not healing. That's sweeping it under the rug. Yeah. It's whitewashing. We can affirm all day long, you're good enough, you're nice enough, and gosh, darn it, people like you. Right? Look in the mirror and say that, that's not healing, and you know it. Yeah. But what does Aslan have to do? He used to said, "I was afraid of his claws. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, perfectly delicious in my deliverance. That's what Jesus offers. You may not like the path to get there, but it is the path of real healing. Of real salvation. Of getting to where it is that you've always wanted to go. Whether you knew it or not. If you've had any thoughts about. Yes, but I can't get past it. Jesus is so compelling. Beautiful. Encouraging. Accommodating. Yes, he is. But go to him on his terms. Not your own. And you'll know the power of Jesus. And for those of us. That have been somehow beaten down by society. And this idea that. How dare you? How dare you claim that your one way is the right way? When in that very statement, they're claiming that their one way is the right way. How dare you double down as Peter did? Not on your own strength. Take a pause. Pray for the Holy Spirit. And bring it. Bring it. God will help you. Bring it. Bring it because to not do so, to remain quiet about this, is treason to our fellow man. To all human beings. To know what we know. The deliverance that we have. The evidence of it that is in our lives. To keep that to ourselves. Rather than boldly proclaiming it. Oh my goodness. God forbid. And so as we. Well Jesus by the way himself prays. If there's another way God. How about we go with it. How about we go with it. Yet not as I will. But as you will. Matthew twenty-six thirty-nine. My father if it is possible. May this cup be taken away from me. The cup of your wrath. Jesus was butchered so that we would have a way. The way. If there were another way, Jesus wouldn't have been butchered. He wouldn't have given himself over to that. He wouldn't have been defiled by my pride and my lust and my immorality and my my seductions. He wouldn't have been so stained in his soul by, by my transgressions. If there were another way... We would take that way. As I've said before, if you could namaste your way into paradise, then there would never be a cross. But you can't just happy thought your way. There needs to be a cross. But it's the most beautiful expression, the most overt gesture, there's more than a gesture, reality that God puts before us to say, "Look look at how much I hate the place that you've gotten to, but how much I love you. Look at how much I want you to know the path. Look at how over the top I make it. And if there is another way and Jesus is butchered, then you have to believe in a God who's a monster, who would just do it for the the, the sake of the event. Why do it if there's another way? And you have to believe in a Jesus who is likewise a fool for doing that, allowing himself to be butchered if there's another way. But there is no other way. And it it not Jesus' prerogative to say to you, Look at what I did. I was tortured. Six hours on a cross. Spikes through my median nerve. Crown of thorns on my occipital and trigeminal nerves. Spikes through my plantar nerves. My heart gave out. And I was stained with all of your filth. But I did it for you. Oh, and by the way, I did it so that you could have the way to God. Is it not his prerogative to say that? Of course it is. And for him to say anything other than that, and for there to be any other way, makes Christianity absurd. And makes the claim for anyone to say, don't you dare say there's only one way in Christianity. It makes that concept absolutely absurd and irrational. This is the only reasonable approach. Know it. Know that you have truth on your side. You have rationality on your side. Be bold. Bring it on. And as we have already looked this week, consider this. Boldly know, boldly go. Consider the truth that Jesus is a beautiful and only way to be saved. What does that mean for you? What does that mean for everybody? And then boldly go. Look for a way to boldly give credit for a good thing in your life to Jesus. In every conversation you have this week, every conversation, look for that open door and give bold credit that Jesus is the only way that I could have had this happen in my life, that I could even be here, that any of these good things could ever happen. Amen. Church, Hampton Roads, church, boldly go. Amen.